It's Monday, July 5th. This is LA Podcast. I'm Hayes Davenport here with Matt Tinoco and Scott Frazier. Thanks to both of you for covering for me the last couple of weeks. I was in uh, part of Sequoia National Park this uh, past week without a lot of uh, internet access, and it turned out to be a week where it was very stressful to follow what was going on <laughs> here, let alone on a very slow connection. Um, so we'll talk about all that. Uh, I We can tell some quick LA stories. Does anyone have Aly- any? Alyssa's on vacation. We Alyssa just, is we on vacation this week. Enjoying yes. her own time in, I guess, the forest. Um, I don't really have an LA story, but uh, on the way to Sequoia, I went through... Um, parts of Tulare County, uh, uh, Kings Canyon Mm -hmm. and, um, a little town called three rivers and the conditions just could not be primer for, uh, vast conflagration. Mm -hmm. The wind was going so hard. Yeah. It was 106. Everything was like so, so dried out. You know, we ended up like higher up in the mountains where it's like cooler and you can like exist. But just farther up a little twisty road. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And it just feels like, uh, you know, we as significant as our fire risk is here, we occupy like kind of a privileged condition compared to a lot of mm-hmm. California where the risk is is so, so extreme. I mean, it was, and it, this was June. Right. Uh, and it was, it was shocking just to see how, um, like how, uh, the, 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 how hazardous the conditions are out there. My LA story, I guess, is that uh, my my partner Sarah and I are we're, we were doula shopping, mm. which was, I mean, it feels like a very it was not something I expected to be doing. I'll say that I didn't even know what a doula did really up until very recently. But the the doula community in Los Angeles rolls deep. We we are doing this kind of last minute, so we had the experience of talking to a bunch of different people who were not available for various reasons during uh, during the month of our due date. But there's like an extensive network; they all lean on each other for support. It was really nice, actually, getting to talk to so many different people about this birth process. And um, and fortunately, we were able to find somebody who's going to be able to help us with that. Shout out to LA's doula community the the we have doulas here we got, we got doulas i guess the the thing that i'll add for my life story is that i got to go to the uh central los angeles library for the first time in yeah. a very long time wow. and it was it's there's not a lot of people in there right now but i was <laughs> i was it was it was the first time i've been browsing the stacks i guess in yeah. a, in a long time and it was nice i went to there was a there's a book there by charlotta bass that I've been, she was the edited a black newspaper called the California Eagle. It's her memoir, more or less, which it's a very difficult book to find. LAPL Central has a couple of copies that you can just check out on reference. So that's what I went to go visit, look through it in the reference area. And and it was just, it was, I don't know, it's fun to be in that building. Although also it's kind of, it's a really highly militarized at this point. I was going to say the librarians are going to be the next uh, department to ask for guns. Yeah, it's. I mean, there there was a lot of there was there were a lot of security. Not all of them armed, but many of them armed, and that's uh, 
I guess just where we are at this point. I guess we'll discuss a little bit of that here in a couple minutes, but uh, yeah, it's it was nice to be in a library. Let's get into it. Yeah, so this past week was a big news week for Los Angeles Municipal Code 4118, 41.18, which if you're at all familiar with how Los Angeles, uh, I guess, regulates the conduct of unhoused people in its public space is a big law. It's, it's LA's sit, lie, sleep law, mm-hmm. which as currently written, the existing ordinance 41.18 subsection D, that's the big one. That's the one that's attracted a lot of attention over the years. It's an old law. It's from 1968. And subsection D basically just says no person shall at any time sit, lie, or sleep on the sidewalk. It's a very broad ordinance. It encompasses literally everybody. So if you go and sit on the sidewalk in Los Angeles right now, uh, I mean, depending on the time of day and certain other circumstances, you're, you could be in theory prosecuted for a misdemeanor crime. But the reality is it doesn't encompass everybody at all. It has never, ever been used that way. This is a law targeted at people experiencing homelessness Uh, and, and not even enforced. It's always been enforced a hundred percent arbitrarily. It is only enforced when it is considered to be like politically urgent to get a specific person or a specific encampment out of a, specific area or at the discretion of law enforcement. I mean, I just want to say too, because Matt, you said like as written, but like as written, it doesn't even have to do with the time of the day. It's it's at any time. And yeah, so it's it's like the the as written law is not enforceable because uh, I don't know, almost 15 years ago now, uh, the federal court system said that it was unconstitutional and that I believe it was actually a cruel and unusual punishment for uh, this law as written to be enforced against unhoused people who had no other provided option than to sleep in the street. So I think it would be helpful to talk about what happened this week. So broadly, mm-hmm. uh, the city council passed in a 13 to 2 vote on Thursday a uh, a new ordinance that reinstates 4118 under somewhat new terms. It didn't actually go, it wasn't unanimous. So it doesn't actually go through until the second reading and a second vote after city council recess on July 28th. But maybe we should start by just going all the way back through the history of this law over the last, just over the last three years. There's been a lot going on. And talk about like how we got to this exact moment. So the history over the course of the past couple of years is is pretty simple. The the city of Los Angeles was uh, bound by the terms of a settlement that it enter, entered into when the core of 4118 was found to be unconstitutional in the early 2000s. That settlement said that they would not enforce the existing provisions at night and they would only enforce them during the day and in certain locations until such time as the city had built a certain number of, of beds for unhoused people to sleep in. That would give them the, uh, the that would give unhoused people the option to sleep indoors somewhere. Uh, so in 2018, Mayor Eric Garcetti said that they had met the terms of that settlement known as the Jones Settlement. But uh, shortly after that, there was another, another federal ruling, the Martin v. Boise ruling, which applied the same standard that LA had been held to without an explicit uh, numeric number of beds that, that they needed to provide throughout the entire uh, range of the, the Ninth Circuit uh, federal court system, which is a 
basically the entire Western United States. Um, so at, once that happened, then city council realized that they were going to need to more or less completely rewrite this law. And they've been trying to do it ever since. In 2019, council member Mitch O'Farrell from the 13th district, Echo Park, Silver Lake, Hollywood, et cetera, put forward a version of this bill that, or of this ordinance that would have banned unhoused people from sleeping anywhere near parks, schools, daycare centers. It was shut down at the time. We talked about it on the show. Other members of the city council even were saying, this is, this is too punitive. Where would it allow people to sleep? There was a really good map that the LA Times did at the time. Uh, Matt Stiles, Emily Albert Reyes, Ryan Menezes uh, put together showing that it would put off limits about 25% of the entire city of Los Angeles and make it illegal to sleep in those locations. So that got shot down. And then the following year during the pandemic, they came back to this idea. Now, it was sort of a fraught issue at the time because, of course, we were in the pandemic. There's an emergency order. And the city was not enforcing a variety of provisions like, well, like this one, 4118 mm -hmm. was not being enforced. But council member Bob Blumenfield, third district, uh, was one of the, the authors of a new proposed motion that, again, was unable to gain traction. There was actually a huge public outcry uh, about the, the potential for this to be reinstated while the pandemic was going on. Yeah, and then those city council members put forward that motion. City attorney Mike Fewer wrote an ordinance and then the city council members, I think in part in reaction to the public outcry that happened, said, okay, this ordinance language is actually too harsh. Mm -hmm. uh, we, we can't move forward with this it was, right now. It was like the day, if you, if you remember, it was actually like the day before Thanksgiving that they like had mm -hmm. this hearing and council president Nuri Martinez said, okay, this obviously isn't going through, but I want, I want this back before me as soon as possible. And then kind of quietly just shuttled it off to the homelessness committee where it's been ever since. Yes. Until this past week. Uh, yeah. And what preceded it coming back was Joe Buscaino, council member for the 15th district who is on the homelessness and poverty committee said, we, we've had all this time. We've had more than six months to review this in homelessness and poverty. It has not come up. We, we got to do something to get rid of these, to, to start enforcing the law. Uh, he used a, an unusual measure, something called Rule 54, where any council member can request that something be pulled out of committee uh, and sent straight to the entire council for a vote. So we said we're, we, we want to pull 4118 out of committee and have it hit the council floor. That happened on Tuesday. That vote was scheduled for Tuesday. Joe Buscaino's motion to, uh, to pull this out of committee went through successfully mm -hmm. because Councilmember Mark Ridley Thomas, Councilmember Paul Krikorian, and a group of four other council members put forward a motion to and like and you can tell just like as we're describing this how kind of intentionally uh intricate it is like it, it is so difficult to follow but they put forward a motion to substitute Joe Buscaino's motion with different language so that one uh, could be voted on instead. So they voted, yes, let's pull this out of committee like Joe Buscano wants, but let's not use his language. Let's mm -hmm. use different language. 
So do do we want to talk about what is actually different about this? Right, because this was being billed as, at least in in some parts of the press, this new version uh, pitched by Mark Ridley Thomas and by Ridley Thomas and his uh, and his co-authors was being billed as a more humane version of what Joe Buscaino wanted to happen. The the new the new ordinance, the new proposed ordinance, which will become law at the end of July, likely, um, basically says it articulates several like feature feet distinctions. So like a person may not sit, lie, sleep on the sidewalk or use property. This is one of the big distinctions. So I'll spell out the where. Uh, you can't be near a driveway. You can't be within 10 feet of a driveway. You can't be within five feet of a building entrance. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't be within two feet of a fire department connection, whether that's like something, a part of a, a building or like a fire hydrant. And there's a couple of other little things like that. And then the ordinance also specifies with council action, the council may also choose to outlaw sitting, lying, sleeping, possessing property on the sidewalk within uh, like a thousand feet of a new, like an abridged home site, like a shelter or mm-hmm. interim something, interim, interim uh, facility like that that's been built since 2018, or like a school or a park and a bunch of other things. That freeways. Were, uh, freeway uh, entrances. Were a big one. Yeah. Bridges, subways. Pedestrian, pedestrian subways. subways, none of which I don't think no, are sorry. in No, sorry, actual subways, not oh. uh, like subway stations. Also pedestrian. Also pedestrian uh, subways, uh, the tunnels. Bridges or tunnels. And on top of that, anywhere that uh, has been proven to be a hazardous location based on certain standards, like if someone has died in an encampment uh, due to a, quote, hazardous condition, uh, or repeated serious or violent crimes or the uh-huh. occurrence of fires resulting in a fire department response. At that point, the city council can go anywhere in the city say, hey, this zone is no longer eligible for camping. Everyone there has to leave. But all of these, uh, other than the, uh, the, the driveways and uh, access according to the American Disabilities Act, all of them require a city council resolution, which right. means the whole council will have to vote to this is, wall them So off. this is, uh, th- th- I think that's the key distinction between yeah. this and actually all of the older, both existing and proposed versions of this ordinance is that uh, 4118 says you're not allowed to sit, lie, sleep anywhere in public. Uh, regardless of time of day, whatever. There's no there's n- no distinction made about any space space or time. Uh, the newer versions reduced that amount of space, and I think had maybe time uh, constraints as well. Uh, but the the newest version is basically saying it is an elective process by which city council members can say this location you cannot be here. This location you cannot be here. Um, still providing for the the potential to carve out enormous parts of the city, possibly, and I would say likely, much greater than the Mitchell Farrell version in 2019. Um, but it would need go, to go through this process of city council member resolutions, similar to what we see uh, with the RV bans in many council districts. And and this is very much like the strategy that's been used uh, with another line of code 5611 around the abridged home sites, around the interim shelters that have been built uh, underneath the abridged home program with uh, from Mayor Garcetti the past couple of years, more or less where after the site is 
the the rhetoric is always, well, you know, in order to get neighborhoods to quote unquote accept these shelters, you know, we need to provide them assurance that there will be stepped up police enforcement in the area around those shelters. That has actually been described by the mayor as a reward for yes. accepting uh, homeless housing. Once once the bridge home site is open, then you'll see the the red and white signs go up where it basically says there's going to be stepped up police enforcement of 5611, which is another uh, municipal ordinance that pertains to the possession of property in the public right of way. And and those signs go up within usually 500 to 1,000 feet of the new uh, bridge home site. Uh, and it's called a special enforcement and cleaning zone. Now, this is more or less written into the new 4118 law. Uh, it also bears mentioning that 5611 right now is being contested in federal court. So the new 4118 ordinance includes a bunch of uh, I mean, it, incl- it includes personal property. So it's not simply just existing with a body on the sidewalk, but it is also possessing or using personal property. And by my read, it also becomes questionable whether or not, like, if I'm using my cell phone while standing on the sidewalk, uh, is that in theory violation of 4118 as currently written, which this is not, this is a, a question I suppose counsel should come back to me or come back, not to me, but like come back to everybody, which is I like, can come back to you. Yeah, um, I assure you that it will not be uh, enforced for that purpose. Uh, it, I, 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 I do think it makes it eligible for lawsuits. Uh, oh, for sure, because it is so sweeping. But it's not intended to, nor will it be uh, used that way. I mean, it's tr- it's just it's truly, uh, I think, indicative of how quickly this was turned around. We 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 saw this vote on like you said on Tuesday right Hayes to to actually bring this out of committee uh, and then there was a motion to have the the city attorney's office draft an ordinance which was then voted on on Thursday and like I don't know if you two remember but at the beginning of the pandemic when we were going through this process of trying to get an eviction moratorium passed the city attorney's office like raised high hell about being asked to draft this language in the span of a week or something. But they flipped this around very quickly. And it is, I think, probably opening the city up to more lawsuits. I mean, we're talking about combining terms of of uh, 5611 and 4118, 5611 being the personal property in public spaces ordinance. That one has also been ruled partially unconstitutional or is at least under a preliminary injunction on those grounds. Uh, because it, it it has been used for unreasonable searches and seizures of personal property is is the ruling that is is currently being uh, appealed by the city. So like uh, this, I feel like is just yet again we're going down this same path where the city has been sued and sued and sued, and you'll hear council members actually saying, "How can you take away our ability to do this exact kind of police action?" and uh, federal courts, at least, have said repeatedly because it's not constitutional. So we're we're trying again. Let's talk about the the police action aspect of it. So this motion also uh, directed city departments, all relevant city departments, to put together new engagement strategies for how these rules would be enforced mm-hmm. and removing law enforcement as much as possible from that process. Uh, but by definition, so they have 30 days to mm-hmm. develop that policy. It says develop and implement that policy. Anyone who thinks that that policy is going to be implemented in 30 days is delusional. And everyone who right. wrote that into the motion knows that that is absolutely not going to happen. So this policy 
the enforcement by definition will go in first. Right. The rules will go in first. And the only department that is available right now to enforce those rules is the LAPD. That's the only structure that's in place mm-hmm. for uh, for enforcement and the um, the park rangers and parks. So we'll have to wait to see exactly what that alternative looks like. And the reason that this happened so quickly uh, is, well, there are a few reasons. One is that the, the month of July is, is always city council recess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so they decided that they wanted to, they wanted to get this done before the recess. And there was also some LA times reporting that indicated that there was pressure on council members to get this done quickly. From uh, billionaire Jeffrey Katzenberg of DreamWorks. Um, that, I mean, this article and was... And Quibi. And Quibi, sure. The Quibi man. That. Uh, <laughs> the uh, RIP Quibi. Um, the, but the, the article that came out in the LA Times about this was very interesting in that we are... I, I mean, we're, we're seeing a new, very wealthy person come into this space, hardly the first person to, to do so in Los Angeles. But Katzenberg, according to LA Times reports, has met with at least half, it seems like, of city council offices um, and has um, no one was really willing to speak about what exactly they discussed with him. Um, but everyone is saying, oh, you know, he's putting in sweat equity. Oh, man, the, the quote in there is just such a, a jumble of uh, like MBA buzzwords. It's, it's hard to even parse. But, um, but the upshot is essentially someone with a lot of money is saying, I helped fund uh, the HHHH campaign of a couple of years ago. Why am I still seeing unhoused people? And uh, and city council members appear to be moved by that uh, line of argument, and in in such a way that they are taking a different action than fundamentally they were going to take before that happened, before that intervention by Katzenberg. And I mean, practically the lines of code that have emerged are are quite. Uh, I mean, they're very different than the other proposals, as we were talking about earlier. We had other proposals that were sort. I mean, the, in 2019 and 2020, and these, I don't know. I, I, I guess they're just they're just more refined. It's a new. It, there was more thought put into them, but also the point being that um, it happened rapidly and outside of view of the public. So, for example, opportunities for public comment on this have been extremely limited, more or less limited to a few minutes of general public mm-hmm. comment on Thursday. Right. Uh, that was, that was the, like the first time the public was uh, actually could see the proposed language was I believe on Wednesday when it entered the council file after Tuesday, when they actually voted to ask the city attorney to um, do it. The ordinance language was, it arrived in council on Wednesday. And so that means the only opportunity for the public to actually, you know, digest and give comment was on Thursday. Was on morning. Thursday, which, uh, to, just to clarify, had the council vote been unanimous, which was what uh, the the members who were voting in favor were lobbying for, it would not have needed a second reading. Even it would have gone into force automatically. So the same after day being that, signed by the mayor, but the, uh, after yes. sure, yes, at which I, I think. He feels he like a formality. He's, he's in DC. He wouldn't have been able to sign. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but uh, but but just to say, like this this would have gone at light speed, basically. And and Mark Ridley Thomas is the chair of the the committee where this has been sitting. 
Um, and uh, at least during Thursday's meeting, council member Nithya Raman, who's also on that committee, has said that they have not discussed it once. And yet, you know, this this now is going to a full committee vote. Or I, full council vote. Raman was saying that she was uncomfortable with voting on something that, as, as Scott just said, that it has not been discussed in committee. And practically also is that there is no enforcement plan. As we hinted at earlier, as Hayes mentioned earlier, is just that it's going to be, it's, the policy is, or it's not the policy, it, it, a law is being passed and and formalized without any real thought as to, well, are we going to, even even in the, the Buscaino proposal, it was, is there going to be an offer of shelter before enforcing, which like that is absent from this what's actually going to become law. And like, you can argue whether or not that is salient public policy if just simply writing it as a line of code is going to, you know, I don't know, work. But like, there's there's not really, besides the 14-day window between a council resolution, putting up the signs, and then in theory, something happens during that 14 days. But like, that is, that's what's, un, that it remains unclear. So like, if a sign is put up near a school, mm-hmm. police can begin enforcing 14 days after that. But like, right now, there is not a, at least publicly, there's no there's no um, communication as to what happens during that 14-day period. Is there targeted outreach? Is there going to be motel vouchers made available? This is stuff that is unclear. And I mean, I I mean, I, I who knows? Like, I, it's not. It's no, there's nothing out in the open here. And I don't know if there's thought behind the behind the scenes. Council. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it, it's it's completely opaque at this point. Uh, you you might say by design, doing this vote immediately before going on recess um, it does seem like a way to just get it out there and get it done. This is something that we're going to continue to follow because it does seem like one of those things where there's months, if not years of inaction, followed by a lightning round of activity that uh, that just launches the city headlong into unconstitutional behavior. So, And one of the most important characteristics of this, I think, is how much discretion it, it puts in the hands of individual council members mm-hmm. and the city council as a body. Uh, there's been a lot of talk over the last few years about like removing some of this power from the hands of the city council, setting up uh, separate departments that are just charged with and like city county agencies with figuring out how to allocate space and where people can and can't sleep and how that is enforced. Instead, any individual city council member can take any section of the city based on pretty broad standards uh, and say, okay, once this passes for up to a year, nobody can camp here. And this well, as a lot of council members, or not a lot, two council members said in the in the meeting, this will have the effect of just shuffling people from block to block around the city, from council district to council district. If you are a council member who decides to take the approach of walling off as much of your district as possible to camping, they will just go to other mm-hmm. districts. Uh, and because of the traditional collegiality of the council members like they tend to just like allow this stuff to go through and at what point i mean like this the scaled out version of this is every district eventually just has no camping uh laws on every on every block right uh there's no other like there's nothing standing in the way of that happening except the courts yeah I think, uh, I mean, we're running a little long here, but the, just the last thing I want to say before we move on is that 
the the whole crux of criminalization of conduct or bodies in public space is that it doesn't really do anything other than to move people along. And so if you have people moving along, well, then maybe there's not a problem. But obviously, like, that's not that's not how, that, that's not a sale, that it doesn't end homelessness, right? You're simply moving the problem somewhere else, which has more or less been public policy for the longest of time in Southern California. And while even in council, there was a bit of discussion about, well, we're not trying to criminalize homelessness. So we're going to make sure that it's a, any, any citation for being in public space is an infraction with the exception of if you disobey or if you uh, like impede the enforcement of this, which those that those are not infractions if you're disobeying a police officer mm-hmm. and those are either going to be misdemeanors or a felony depending on the circumstance and that's loading people up with misdemeanors uh, is just it's counterintuitive it adds and it, it takes people farther away from the goal of resolving homelessness than yeah. than vice versa and it gives it gives extremely wide latitude to individual enforcing officers yeah, to uh, to give people misdemeanors. So you are, in fact, criminalizing homelessness despite what the rhetoric is. Metro. Big news this week for Metro. Definitely not the week Metro wanted to have, but also it's kind of hard to tell what Metro wants based off of, you know, you know well, I guess I will talk about that based off of their social media feeds yeah, and their Twitter does. presence. So it's not totally clear. And also like, is is who's actually in charge of Metro? This is always the eternal, <laughs> eternal thing. So Scott, why don't you, can you start and tell us what was... What was this week going to be for Metro? What happened this week? Yeah, I was going to say, I mean, does does Metro agree on what Metro wants? Uh, the the week that Metro wanted was actually um, it it would have been a very very good and positive week full of ribbon cuttings, etc. They did that the, to do the fun thing where they drive a bus through a ribbon. That's a mm. that's a good way to cut a ribbon. Um, <laughs> but uh, there were two very big things for Metro this week. The first was. Uh, they were opening with the city of Los Angeles, Department of Transportation and Bureau of Street Services, a new bus only lane on Alvarado Street in Echo Park and, and historic Filipino town. They were also celebrating the second phase of the next gen bus plan. This is something we've talked about a few times, broadly speaking. It is uh, a new service plan that puts lots more service onto the county's busiest transit corridors. Um, So all good for riders there. And uh, they were hoping that this would be sort of the beginning of a a press tour for them that was about recovery from the COVID pandemic, uh, some sort of return to normalcy and maybe a better version of normalcy than what was previously uh, experienced by riders before the pandemic. Unfortunately, uh, it's the same metro as ever. So, so what's happened is you have a lot of just from a from a user perspective. So, like I walk around my neighborhood. I live I live where the 780 used to be, uh, was a rapid bus line that ran between Pasadena and Fairfax. Mm-hmm. The 780 no longer exists. Metro has so in the next gen plan, Metro basically made the decision: we're going to pull out some of the we're going to pull out lines. Uh, that might be re- considered redundant and beef up service on Parallel. other local lines that yeah. can do that. So, and they have done that. Like there is now the 217 line and the 180. They have, and 181, they have better service. But the 780 bus line uh, is still signed along its route throughout, at least where I've noticed these signs in Hollywood, leading to confusion about, well, does the 780 exist or not exist? 
um, which if you're a user who's, you know, maybe not on Twitter or mm-hmm. like uh, as up to date, like if you're just relying on the signs as you would expect the signs to be there, uh, like, you know, accurate, like Metro has clearly been on the signs. Like all of the signs say things have been changed. There's these little flags. So like people, staffers have practically been on those signs, mm-hmm. changing the signs, but like, the information uh, remains incorrect. And right? that's not, and that's, yeah. And that's in, if you, I mean, Kenny Ung has been doing a very good job of pointing out uh, where there's signs, like he's auditing the system. But I mean, yeah, there's- tr- Transit advocate, Kenny Ung, who who rides every Metro line regularly, friend of the show has also been on the 10 previously, it, uh, has actually been out there riding the new bus service and documenting what he's observing. Um, cut. You just wish that somebody from Metro would do the same, right? <laughs> yeah, I uh, I've, I've been following uh, Scott Yur and Alyssa's like documenting like this and the the lack of information around whether or not people are supposed to pay fares mm-hmm. uh, right now. And I wonder, like, what is the good version of this? All the signs were changed in advance of the. Uh, of the new lines being put in for mm-hmm. sure better information like how but also how to get information out to riders better yeah so the good version of this is actually not terribly different from what the bad version is the good version of this is and and metro for their part sort of defends themselves on the the signage issue by saying oh well this is the the first really system wide change There's that we've done. There's a lot done. of signs. There's a lot of signs. Mm-hmm. It affects a lot of places that we don't always go. Um, but I think that that's the incorrect way to look at this. Uh, NextGen has been in the planning phase for uh, about three years now, and it has been a phased implementation. As I said, this is the second phase. They did a, a, a previous sort of so they they parceled it out into three segments. They did a minor adjustment in December. They're going to do another major adjustment in this upcoming December. So for implementation not to have been a consideration there, even with what they're saying was a narrow window of time in Mm -hmm. which they could have updated the the bus stops, et cetera, to all be consistent, the system maps remain uh, incorrect. Um, Actually, they've had a lot of time to plan how they were going to go about this. And um, as documented by bus riders like Kenny Young throughout the week, even once there was that initial outcry on Monday of this past week, the signage remained incorrect throughout the week. It's not like it was, oh, there was a time crunch and we didn't get to some of this stuff. It was, we did not consider that this was something that we would need to do and we still don't have a plan to get it done. So uh, the, the, the good version of this involves a much heavier focus on implementation and what it looks like to be a bus rider. If you were somebody who is primarily using a uh, a smartphone to get around on transit, you had correct information. But if you did not, and um, and I would say it's probably about half, maybe a majority of uh, bus riders do have access to smartphones. But it is a very low income population and one with uh, linguistic impairments. As, as far as getting information from an English only uh, system. Uh, so you need to just make sure that the information from a rider level when you're at a bus stop is correct. Yeah. 
Yeah. And I mean, parallel to all of this happening, the the service has changed. Bus lines don't go where they used to go. And the communication mm-hmm. hasn't been clear. Uh, Hayes noted earlier, for a second earlier, but the the other metro-related stuff this week is, are, are, are fares being collected or not? And you've during the pandemic with the with the move towards rear door boarding. So when you get on a metro bus, the tap this area where you tap, with the exception of a couple of lines, I think the Vermont Rapid and the Wilshire Rapid line, uh, the tap section, the tap the area where you pay your fare is located right next to the driver. So during the pandemic, we've switched to rear door boarding, which means effectively buses are free. But whether or not buses are free is actually a question uh, that it, it depend depending on who you ask, you get a different answer. So Metro Board, uh, so so officially, what it is is there's a there, Metro has a policy of non-fare collection, which is to say that while the fares are still there and they we, won't turn them down, they won't turn them but down. If you don't pay. It's that's okay. That's it's okay. A pay what you want model, yeah. but. I, I mean, I'll ask for a little bit of clarification on what the exact policy change was going to be this week. But my understanding was that the Metro Board was going to continue that policy and, and actually moved moved a motion and mm-hmm. enacted uh, as a you know act of governance to say that we are going to continue this policy of not collecting fares. However, when people get on the buses at the front door now this week, now that front door boarding has resumed. There's a pretty widespread issue, yeah, a wide, of, widespread of outcomes, right? Yeah, like it, it. It basically comes down to the operator, and so some operators continue, like you know, I mean, I think even in the before times, like people, many operators would just let people get on without tapping a fare. Uh, but now there's also, courtesy of Kenny, a substantial <laughs> amount of documentation yeah. about operators not letting people on without their fare, which is a direct contradiction of. Uh, what in theory the body who is in theory or supposed to be governing Metro is is uh, has advocated for officially? Yeah, I mean this this issue of fair collection is really, I mean it, it's kind of analogous to the U.S. military's "Don't ask, don't tell" under um, mm-hmm. under Bill Clinton, right? Like. Uh, they have settled now, following a week of outcry from the public on a stance that is fares still exist. We're just not collecting them. Um, and they seem to be comfortable with that. That seems to be the, the extent of how far they're willing to go. The, the, more, the, the more recent board motion that said that they were not going to resume fare collection was a huge victory for uh, transit riders. As I said, the vast majority of them are low income, extremely low income. And the recovery is not helping them as much as it is helping higher income earners. So the goal by the board, the goal by transit advocates was to maintain non-fair collection as a way to help out through the recovery period the way that that was done during the pandemic. The way that Metro staff interpreted that was to say, uh, we never said that fares were free. Other Many other mm-hmm. cities throughout the country did. Denver, Oakland, uh, Toledo, Ohio, all had free service. Uh, but Metro never said that. What they said was, we'll take the fare if you want to pay us, never mind the fact that drivers won't let you get near them so you can't pay. Um, so we'll, sure, we will continue our existing fare enforcement policy, which is to say fares are not free. 
and uh, transportation reporter for the LA Times, I'm sorry, transportation reporter emeritus, mm-hmm. Laura Nelson, do not at her about transportation issues. She won't appreciate it. Uh, actually got screenshots of messages that had been sent to bus operators early on in this week where they were being directed by dispatchers to ask for fares. So, um, so Metro staff, and we come back to this question of who is actually in charge. It does seem sort of like the the tail is wagging the dog here. Metro board uh, gives a direction and it is flouted in intention, if not in uh, the letter of what is actually laid out. Well, Metro has been saying on online to anyone who has asked, uh, Metro encourages riders to pay to tap their tap cards when uh, they're able to do so. They were moved later that week. They, they, they moved their position to say that they are not collecting fares at this time. You should not need to pay on a Metro bus anywhere that you're, you're riding. If you are asked to pay, uh, I guess send us an email at hello at the LAPod.com and, um, and we'll, we'll be the public auditor for that. But, um, but this is another area where the Metro Board can't seem to make up its mind about what exactly its policy should be and implementation is uh, suffering, rider experience is suffering certainly as a result. And rider experience suffering is also that the bus line no longer runs here, yeah. which is not so much suffering as the rider experience evaporates with the consequence being... Yeah. You cannot get like I mean, tran- if you're transit dependent, you lost your transportation, and particularly yeah. with the amount of effort and and stru- like the the lousiness of Los Angeles's accessibility. One of the things that Metro has quote unquote going for it is, in theory, it's a, an accessible system, and so if you're going to tell somebody who relies on ramps to get around, who's who's uses a wheelchair to get around that, oh, actually your bus is no longer running on this particular street. It's four or five blocks away on another street. Like that is a really significant um, barrier to the effect of it's going to be really difficult for that person to actually get to where they need to go for whatever reason they need to do. Like that's a user nightmare. So in South LA this week, I mean, we, we've been following a number of stories about uh, the it's sort of like an annual spectacle. You have public servants uh, doing a sort of spy versus spy thing against people who bring illegal fireworks uh, into Los Angeles for for setting off. Of course, this is the biggest, I think, undoubtedly the biggest holiday weekend of the year here in Los Angeles, uh, and and you will hear it and you will breathe it in for days afterwards. Um, Public servants are after people who bring in illegal fireworks. This week, this past week, there was a very, very high stakes version of that playing out in South Central uh, at the intersection, around the intersection of 27th Street and San Pedro. When LAPD found a cache of, they said, three to 5,000 pounds of fireworks in, uh, in, in just in somebody's home, in somebody's backyard, And then after uh, identifying what they were continuously referring to as IEDs, um, but but seem to have just been uh, homemade fireworks potentially, as opposed to commercial grade, they attempted to safely detonate those those fireworks in the street in front of the residents. But they actually caused an enormous explosion that damaged homes for blocks around and sent, uh, well, injured, 
17 people sent about half that number to the hospital. So the sequence of how this works is LAPD said that on Tuesday, they received a tip that led them to on Wednesday, uh, as Scott said, finding all the fireworks in the backyard. Wednesday afternoon, though, they call media to the scene. So it's so this is happening as I mean, you, you made the point of like it's a it's a whole show where we're going to show a tit for tat here and, and make a show of it for the general public. Uh, you call media to the scene to witness the detonation of um, the homemade fireworks in a basically an armored truck. There's a there's a there's a a million dollar truck that is where you put the explosives in into a special like a, an iron container inside that is supposed to contain the shrapnel, but like let the force of the blast go out. And then they were going to detonate this in view of media, as Scott said, in the middle of a residential street, right? So it's a narrow residential street in South Central with like apartments and houses all over the place. In the run-up to that detonation, uh, police say that, well, we conducted, you know, outreach. We went on door knocking to, you know, try and make sure that there wasn't, we tried to clear the area. We did our very Mm -hmm. best to clear the area. Um, They said 300 feet around around the location. They tried to set up a a cordon. Yeah, And and then they... I guess flick the switch, flick the lighter, whatever it was, and it wasn't. It did not work. They, it, the entire truck blew up. Uh, parts of the truck were found, like significant. The, the on Friday they said that, or the ATF said that the a 500 pound piece of the truck was found mm-hmm. four blocks away from the site, which is way more than 300 feet. And mm-hmm. um, it, as, as Scott said, it sent a bunch of people to the hospital. So you 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 have this situation of well, why? I mean, clearly. There was a giant mess up uh, in the either loading of the truck, the maintenance of the truck, the, well, there are many mess ups here. The decision to do this in a, the police would say that, well, we we made the decision to uh, detonate here because we didn't believe that it was, the, the explosives were stable enough to transport. And right. Okay, well, does that mean that there's? St- I mean, but then, but then you're blowing it up in a residential neighborhood. So, right. so you have the criticism of, well, if this was a more affluent neighborhood and not 27th and San Pedro, well, would you have made the? Would the calculus have been the same? You have the criticism of, well, why are you using South Central as a backdrop for a media spectacle on fireworks? You have. Well, I think that that part is relatively clear. I mean, the the crackdown that we have seen on illegal fireworks this year. Uh, so city attorney Mike Fewer, who we obviously can't leave out at this point, is is running for mayor as well, um, has made it a really big social media thing where he's going to be seeking out and destroying every single illegal firework that he can get his hands on. Uh, the LAPD has also been doing a, a similar push. And... Uh, sort of in the background of this, there, there were also stories in the LA Times, uh, presumably fed uh, to some extent by uh, by police narratives about how street gangs are responsible for bringing in illegal fireworks the same way that they're bringing in drugs, etc. Um, and so I think that this has become a very racialized narrative. And so it doesn't surprise me so much that they are going into South Central and saying, oh, look at what we found, um, this huge criminal uh, firework operation. This is what we're going to show everyone. This is what happens when you when you try and sell fireworks in this community. Yeah, I mean, this is a, you know, obviously you talk about South Central as the backdrop, these huge fireworks repositories are not in like residential parts of 
Brentwood and mm-hmm. in all like although you know like there there have been huge well, remember that um the gun house yeah whatever happened yeah what I think about gun, gun house? house all the time uh but this is part of a push to take preventative measures around what is I mean the question of like what to do if anything at all about fireworks on the Fourth of July is a big one as the city like kind of crisps and desiccates. It <laughs> is incredibly dangerous to put any fire in the air at all. Sure, uh, and you know that like there are tons of you know the entire fire department uh, is working on uh, the night of the Fourth of July. Mm-hmm. So many other city departments are like going around trying to like inevitably when uh, half the palm trees in the city catch fire to like to try and put it out. The air, like you were saying, Scott, it is the worst air day of the year. It is a public health and public safety disaster that happens no matter what. It's just like a cultural thing that uh, is this year unstoppable. Uh, So what to do about that? Like there is no possible way that the city has the infrastructure right now to find all these fireworks before they're sold. Yeah, no. They're sold right over the border in Nevada. Like it is just not hard to, to, to get these things. Uh, and they want to show that they tried. Sure. That's like the big thing is like, we are working on this. It's so, a big polit I mean it's yeah. a big political show. In the same way that we might uh say about the the 4118 vote that there was a clear crossover there with mayoral uh politics with the uh, the Mark Ridley Thomas potentially being a, a candidate and Joe Buscaino being in there. Now mm-hmm. we have Mike Fewer here uh pushing this this uh illegal fireworks operation. But you know the the LA Times has reported on several other uh, and and I'll just say like p- police and city officials will point to the fact that uh, without police intervention, illegal fireworks can be deadly. There was uh, an explosion in Ontario in the Inland Empire uh, not that long ago that killed two people that involved uh, these these illegal commercial grade fireworks. Um, it can happen. But that said, what we're talking about actually is a series of decisions that involve going into this particular neighborhood in South Central um, and and setting off an enormous bomb uh, just outside of people's homes. Um, Which so- destroyed homes. There have been buildings that have been red tagged and yet in, in the aftermath of this. Yeah, I mean, and it's, go ahead. It's a, there's a, an area, the area of investigation is like, which I, media coverage hasn't been good, but if you dig around on it, you can find like there's people who have, there's many cars were destroyed. So you mm-hmm. have poor families have, that have lost their mode of transportation, mm-hmm. uh, distinct people being sent to the hospital with relatively severe injuries. Uh, buildings were, I, I can't say destroyed, but they are no longer fit for habitation. And then ongoing, like as of our recording, which we're recording this on Saturdays, just so you know when when I'm saying this, but like, there is still a radius where people are not allowed to go uh, because it's an active investigation, which is to say that there's a bunch of people who have been displaced because yep. of this for, by now, several days. And uh, it, when you when you listen to how the, there was a press conference on Friday where the city's office, I believe it was the Office of Emergency Management was, you know, mm-hmm. uh, questioned about, well, how are people affected supposed to, you know, are you going to be compensating the victims or, or those affected and like, and whatever. And, and the city is basically saying, 
Yeah, they can call their insurance. Yep. They can come to our, you know, intersection at uh, 20, uh, they can come to our local little, our, I guess, tent where we're, you know, giving directions and we, we're partnering with community-based organizations to, you know, provide services and connect people to whatever it is. But like, uh, there's a ton of people who have been affected by this who have been, you know, in a sense, made homeless by this. Yep. Uh, and um, for what? And who are and who are going to be subject to racialized enforcement of uh, of a number of of laws as a result? Yeah, no, uh, lots of people um, are displaced. There were um, there were actually people in the LA Times saying that they had been told directly by police, "Oh, you need to call call your insurance." Um, they're they're not going to do anything to make you whole. As a matter of fact, the police are saying that the the culpability. It lies with the person who was running the firework operation. This is something that they routinely do when they are responsible for body bodily harm. Uh, the first example that springs to mind for me is the death of Melly Corrado yeah. in Trader Joe's. LAPD officers shot into and uh, and killed a woman, and then um, and then blamed it on the the person who they were pursuing, who was not in any respect the the firing party. So um, this is this is LAPD tactics sort of in, in full view. And one of the things that has been really interesting to me to watch is the way that uh, the police are, I mean, as they do, aggressively attempting to shape the narrative around what happened. Uh, as early as Wednesday night, Chief Michael Moore was saying, and Wednesday being the day of the explosion, Chief Michael Moore was saying, um, what we're seeing here is the catastrophic failure of this piece of equipment known as the total containment vessel. Um, and it's interesting because like the, I w I looked into a lot of the, um, a lot of the existing documentation about these devices. They are commercial. Uh, they're just commercial pieces of equipment. They're available to government agencies to buy They're You know, they run in a range from 300,000 to, uh, Presumably several million dollars, depending on the customization options, the the detonation size, etc. Um, there's a limited amount of study that has actually been done on their uh, on their their safety. Like, I mean, and and by that I don't mean whether or not it's ever safe to use them, but like under what circumstances would you use them, and how would you use them. Um, and the federal government has indicated as much in a number of different reports that they've done. Uh, you know, the Department of Defense, the Department of Homeland Security, these federal agencies that are dealing with these types of military threats uh, to a much greater extent and with a much greater level of expertise than our, say, the LAPD bomb squad. Um, just, just as a side note, uh, the Department of Defense site has as its motto uh, that you... Uh, expose the minimum number of people to the minimum uh, quantity of explosive material for the minimum amount of time in order to make the the uh, area safe. And I would just hazard the, a, a statement that the LAPD did not do that and uh, did not even attempt to do that. They called people to the location. They, mm -hmm. they brought in more people, mm -hmm. uh, some of whom were sent to the hospital. So um, so the decision-making here is, is clearly not a good one. The police have sought to call it just like a failure of equipment, but these total containment vessels are primarily, as far as I can tell, for the use of transporting explosive devices out of populated areas 
and two remote locations where they can uh, safely test and or detonate the explosive device. And it's not it it's not merely a question of how much. And this is this is sort of what was happening in the press conference yesterday. It's not merely a question of how old was this vessel or how many times it had been used. When was the last time it had been tested? All good questions. Um, but frankly, like even in New York City, a couple of years ago, there were these uh, these bombs that were being sent to like CNN anchors and things like that from you know uh, uh, Trump wing uh, Trump right wing guy who was uh, you know trying to threaten Tom Brokaw or whatever, uh, and they used those devices, those literal bombs intended to kill somebody. They used the total containment vessel to drive it away. It's just, it seems to me unsupportable that you would say um, this is too dangerous for us to drive it in a, in a machine that is custom built for the purpose of driving explosive devices, but we will blow it up in the middle of uh, people's houses. We need something for the top of the 11 o'clock hour, Scott. Yeah, the well, news you directors. got it. <laughs> I mean, the, the the news coverage has also, I mean, so the Times has been doing a good job, Daily News, et cetera, have, have even been doing a fairly good job covering this. The TV news has been a little bit more suspect. I mean, on CBS, we had a field correspondent um, basically insinuating that the police did everything right, jumping to the same uh, preliminary conclusion that police are... It was a, it was a are, technical are, failure on the part of the equipment. Right, which is exactly what the police are saying. And um, and the, the field correspondent actually went further than that, being very gracious and saying, imagine if this were, if this had blown up on the 405, which again, I mean, procedurally, why would you do that? Why would you be like, okay, we're going to drive this into the most crowded place possible? Like that seems like that wouldn't, have even been, uh, that's not the option. The option was to take it somewhere less crowded. Um, but, drive, it, drive it in the river. But uh, the field correspondent um, making, I think, the same error in judgment as the police in saying that like, as long as it's in a black and brown neighborhood, who cares? Just do it. Just get rid of it. Um, but yeah, so this this is something where now the federal government is involved, uh, the Bureau of Ac- Alcohol, Tobacco, and Firearms and Explosives uh, will be leading this investigation. It seems clear to me that uh, Chief Michael Moore, as he frequently does, has prejudged the outcome of what that, that investigation should be. So it, I mean, it remains to be seen what, if anything, will come of this. They're very insistent that they followed uh, all procedures but the public can't be sure of that at this point in time. We don't know how much explosive material they put in the device. We don't know that they were using it according to the specification. And we have no reason to believe uh, that there was a good process of decision-making that led them to attempt this in the middle of the neighborhood in the first place. And finally, there's one more thing that keeps coming up. So we're back to COVID chat. COVID chat. This retired segment is... uh, uh, is back for good. Uh, so we reopened in California two or so weeks ago, June 15th, full reopening. Uh, my wife walked in when I was watching the uh, baseball game last night in Oakland. It's like just like a full crowd. And she's like, wait, when, what happened? Like, when did this <laughs> happen? Uh, and in that time, 
most to all of the recommendations around uh, COVID safety, mask wearing, uh, the ability for people to populate uh, the indoor spaces have gone away. Uh, and now for the first time in a few months, regulations or in this case, recommendations are actually being added back on. Mm-hmm. In this case, the LA County Department of Public Health uh, released a statement, quote, strongly recommending that uh, residents wear masks while indoors, whether or not they are vaccinated. And the big reason for this is the spread of the Delta variant, which originated in India or is thought to have, uh, it was first observed there. Uh, It is identified as a variant of concern by the WHO and the CDC. uh, And it clearly... Uh, seems uh, based on everywhere in the world to, to spread much faster. And there are also questions about the uh, the severity of the infection once you get it. Is this uh, a sign of like, are we turning back towards uh, COVID lockdowns again? Is this the right thing to be doing? Should we be doing more? Or do we feel like we're in a slightly safer place? I think it's worth noting that while cases are rising and they're rising fairly quickly, we, we have the, the the highest number of single day cases this past week uh, since April. There was a bump. It was over 500, I believe. It was Friday. over 500 again. Yes, absolutely. Uh, and deaths uh, tend to lag uh, rising cases. So we could be seeing rising deaths as well, but this is happening in a context of totally unrestricted um interaction at this point uh because even this new mask wearing policy is not something that you have to do businesses don't have to uh enforce it that way um it's just something that they recommend still i mean it's it's a stronger stance than other governments Mm -hmm. at least in the united states have taken there are uh, there are foreign governments that are doing things similar or uh, or actually more restrictive than what the Los Angeles County B- Department of Public Health has opted to do. Uh, State of Israel has uh, has made a mandate on mask wearing, but hasn't imposed any of the previous lockdown requirements. Australia is is experiencing some more lockdowns, and um, and so are some European states as well. Um, but that said, you know, when you look around the United States, San Francisco and the Bay Area have declined to, you know, there were a lot of stories about LA's decision. So uh, other governments have been asked about this. The counties in the Bay Area have all said they're not going back to it. The state of California has said it's not going back. Chicago, New York, all these places are saying we're not considering expanding mask guidance at this time. Now, Los Angeles County is doing this, it says, because... Um, with the the spread of the Delta variant, which now makes up a majority of uh, sequenced uh, viral strains that have have been uh, identified in Los Angeles in the past couple of weeks, and uh, Hayes, as you mentioned, this this variant is rapidly taking over uh, the previous dominant position of the Alpha variant, so called the the former UK variant as it was known at the time. Um, it's taking over everywhere. LA public officials, uh, Muntu Davis, the, the county health officer, uh, Barbara Ferrer, the, the, uh, the head of the public health department, that they are all indicating that their concern is that 
people, first of all, that we don't know how many people who are vaccinated are getting asymptomatic cases of COVID uh, and, uh, and actually spreading it to people who are unvaccinated. And second of all, that they are concerned that this is just going to rip through the unvaccinated population right. in Los Angeles. Which to some extent, it already is in other parts of the country. So not, not so much in Los Angeles, but if you go uh, Clark County, Nevada, Las Vegas is seeing, it's, uh, Clark County is a, a quarter the size of Los Angeles. Their case counts are more than Los Angeles County right now. They're seeing more than 500 cases a day, which is still a fraction of what things were many months ago when right. risk, the, the, the underlying issue of the coronavirus pandemic was one, yes, it is a bad disease for any individual who gets it. And if you're particularly vulnerable, it is a particularly bad disease but it's also contagious enough that it can overwhelm the hospital system. And that yeah. was always the key public health concern. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think, I mean, I guess we'll see if the Delta variant is infectious enough and there's enough unvaccinated people to overwhelm the hospital system. It doesn't seem like that's exactly happening. Hospitalizations aren't happening, but the fact remains that it is an incredibly contagious disease that for the individual who's unvaccinated, who gets it, it's a really, that's, that is quite a serious concern. But one, I mean, one of the biggest factors in all this is like a lot of these cases that have been uh, discovered are among vaccinated yeah. people. 70% almost of LA County has been vaccinated now. That was a number that was talked about as qualifying as, as herd immunity at some point. I've, I've, I've had at least one dose. That's So that is among the vaccine eligible population. Among vaccine yeah. eligible, which is anyone 15, 16 12, and over? 12. We're 12, 12 now. now. Okay. And as a result, like, it is possible that we will see not quite the same, likely that we'll see not the same proportion of hospitalizations to cases and deaths to cases as we saw previously because of vaccinations just making those infections less serious because all the evidence seems to indicate that of the vaccinations out there, they all neutralize the Delta variant at about the same rate uh, yeah, in specifically in the U.S., and so yes. there's been there's been some yeah. discussion by the CDC, who also have not uh, reinstituted any mask wearing guidance. Uh, the CDC has repeatedly said the U.S. Uh, the U.S. approved vaccines are all handling the the Delta variant, uh, and even if you get a one of these so called breakthrough infections, having been vaccinated previously, you contract uh, COVID that it would be a minor infection is is the stance of the CDC. Mm-hmm. That is not necessarily the case for uh, for some of the vaccines that have been approved elsewhere. But um, but yeah, I, I mean, so it's interesting because we're we're in a situation where, based on what the what LA County Public Health is saying, um, anytime there's a new variant and the the variation process, like the mutation process is something that is natural to and inherent to viral spread. Mm. They're always, well, there probably are always going to be new, uh, new variants. Well, there, it's not probably, there definitely will be if we continue down this pathway where we are right now, where we have an extremely infectious yeah. variant and a significant portion of the world unvaccinated and seemingly is going to be unvaccinated for a long time. Right. And and so, I mean, yes, that's a good point. And so the Delta variant has been able to spread around the world in part because people are resuming these activities of going to other places and, um, and it is ideal conditions for a variant like this to spread. Just to say, like, uh, based on what has been seen in Australia, they're saying that the Delta variant, um, as opposed to in 
So let's say spring of 2020, we were being told if you were around somebody unmasked for a period of say 15 to 20 minutes, you could contract COVID from that person if they had it. Um, based on what we're able to tell now, the Delta variant, which is possibly two to three times more transmissible than the original strain of, of COVID, um, would spread in you know several seconds, basically very minor interaction. So ideal conditions for it to spread all around the globe, uh, particularly among unvaccinated people and cause serious infections for them. Public health officials have been saying that there is a there's an upper bound on how even with continued mutation there's an upper bound on how transmissible covid will get. So maybe there's another variant that takes over for the delta variant but it's not a given. Um and public health health officials have been split on this issue of whether or not LA's guidance is actually a good idea. There are some people who have uh who have actually said it is counter to the the larger goal of getting more people vaccinated, particularly in uh, black and brown communities and the conservative uh, North County region of Los Angeles County. Also the highly black and brown area too. The, yes, like the, yeah, the Antelope Valley specifically. Absolutely. So, uh, um, but you have this, you have this messaging of getting vaccinated is, will be good for you personally um, but if you're saying, oh, but the restrictions are not going to fundamentally change, at least this is the thinking from some public health officials, then you are undercutting that messaging to a certain degree. That's true of, of a lot of stuff. I mean, in, in this case, I think like wearing a mask at the grocery store um, is it, it's a different kind of restriction than mm. like losing your the, like something that results in you losing your job or like right. personal isolation and things like that. And now, I mean, it feels like it's so different from the beginning of the pandemic where we were balancing the widespread job loss and economic harm and the other like social effects of the lockdown with a totally vulnerable population for a disease that uh, was still not widely understood, but we knew was really, really dangerous. We're like, we have to do this. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think that's so clear at all. I don't know what the the right answer is necessarily. And I think, it, I mean, like, we're all we're recording the show in person with no masks. Yeah, in a in a in, a, in an like, enclosed room. I'm yeah, still, exactly. I'm still carrying, and so the thing is, I'm still carrying my mask with me, and it's sort of like uh, somebody in in uh, the news this week compared it to like dressing for the weather. Like you know, if yeah. you if you are going out and you feel like you should wear a mask, then you you do it. If you don't, you don't. Um, but there's certainly, to me, a case to be made for if we're, if we're talking about running up against. The now the most uh, dedicated holdouts, then I feel like the the mandates are going to become necessary at some point. San Francisco is uh, the first in California the, the vaccine, to, vaccine mandate, to do you mean, right? a, va a vaccine mandate. That's right. For public employees. For tens of thousands of public employees. employees. And, um, and Los Angeles has been resistant to that idea and apparently on like labor grounds because um, SEIU in San Francisco, which represents the majority of their employees, has opposed it there. But, uh, but to me, you know, like, especially if we're talking about voluntarily asking uh, people who are already vaccinated to do something that you're saying, oh, this is not really going to affect you one way or the other. The, the, best, the best argument that you can make is there are... 1.3 million people in LA County who are still not eligible to get the vaccine and their children. Um, so there, there is a, a, a strong case to be made there, but, um, but this 
sort of like, oh, well, it would be great if you did this guidance. I just don't really see... If it's a, if it's a clear public health risk, then uh, the vaccine mandate has to be the first mm-hmm. approach, I would think. More to come, I'm sure. All right, that is our show. This was LA Podcast episode 181. Thank you so much for listening. It's been a pleasure to discuss these issues with Hayes Davenport and Matt Tinoco this week. Uh, Matt Tinoco, thank you also for being our managing editor on the podcast. Brian Holmes, thank you for producing. Sepulveda Passholders, thank you for keeping us going. And everyone else, thank you for listening. We will be back next week with a brand new episode.